Professor Mavridis, thank you for joining us today on Austin Hellenic Radio. To begin, tell us about yourself and your academic background. First of all, it's a big pleasure for me to be uh, taking part in this radio show that you have. Uh, I feel that I have a very strong connection with the States, given that I grew up uh, in American high school back home in Thessaloniki in Greece, and that later I actually did my graduate studies in UCLA and MIT in the States. And I had a very active, if you want, uh, connection with the Greek-American community, having uh, acted as president of the Hellenic Student Association at MIT and in many other capacities. I was born in Greece, in Thessaloniki, out of a family that was connected in many respects to academia and learning. So my father was an astronomer, my mother was a linguist, and going all the way back to my grandmother, who was a teacher in a school up in the mountains of Macedonia in Greece. Later, I was really into programming and computers and electronics, even from my high school years. So I remember having started to learn programming on a ZX Spectrum computer that's almost equivalent of a Commodore 64 that we used to have here and starting to build my first amplifiers and you know microprocessor based computers when I was like 15 or 16 so it was almost an obvious choice for me to uh, continue into something that has to do with computing and electrical engineering so then I did my first degree in the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki and then again it was almost an obvious choice to uh, try to get my uh, graduate degrees in the States in uh, the beginning I did my master's in UCLA in Los Angeles one year and with very good results and then later I decided to go to MIT to uh, the media laboratory of uh, Nicolas Negreponte where I carried out my PhD. What has brought you to the United States and to Austin in particular? So um, after having gotten my PhD from the MIT Media Lab, my first uh, faculty position was with the United Arab Emirates University, which is the oldest and largest university in the Emirates. And uh, now I have just recently joined uh, New York University with a main assignment in its uh, Abu Dhabi campus. So I'm um, traveling to Austin for the uh, annual conference of the Semiconductor Research Corporation, where I'm uh, representing NYU Abu Dhabi as part of the uh, team of the Emirates as a whole, which uh, comes together with uh, the Advanced uh, Technology Investment Corporation of the Emirates. So recently there has been increased collaboration between the states uh, and the UAE in the field of uh, semiconductors through uh, global foundries and the acquisition of a part of AMD and so on. So uh, one of the reasons for me being here is to try to strengthen this connection. Your area of expertise is in the field of robotics. And certainly when many people hear about the term robots or robotics, there's certain images that are conjured up that have been inspired by science fiction and by movies and other popular culture portrayals. But what is robotics really like and how can research into robotics benefit our society? It's quite an interesting question. So again, if I try to tackle the answer, you know, historical if you want way but also personal historical way. Robots and the general idea of robots has its beginnings in ancient technology and at the same time in if you want ancient mythology and folklore. So there used to be automata 
in temples in Egypt, in Greece, and in a lot of other places, for example, in Japan. And these were mechanical uh, devices which would uh, go through a sequence of movements and appear to have some kind of uh, animacy in them. But these devices were actually not intelligent in any way, and they were not really responding to their environment. On the other hand, if you have a look at mythology, I mean, there used to be the idea of Talos in ancient Greece, a robot that would guard the island of Crete, and then there is the golem of Prague, if you go into later traditions. And almost all mythologies and you know, folkloric histories of the world contain something similar to the idea of robots. Then you have science fiction, and finally you have real robots, which uh, right now are quite widely used in specific fields. So, in, for example, in manufacturing and industrial environments, they're uh, quite established since a number of years. Recently, one of the big changes is that we're actually moving far beyond these restricted, if you want, applications areas and robots are starting to become part of our everyday life and to start to be applied in many many other areas so it's quite a huge field at the moment and really booming so there's medical robotics there's robotics for search and rescue there's of course military robotics educational robotics all the way to very very specific application areas there's even robots for entertainment and so on and one of the other differences that is uh, starting to really become obvious is that nowadays and even more so in the future robotics are becoming more and more intelligent. Today's robots are starting to be able to communicate with humans in much more natural ways, being able to perform dialogue in natural language, being able to deal with human non-verbal communication and gestures and so on, being able to, if you want, get a shared perception of the world through computer vision and so on with humans, even all the way to actually being able to learn through experience. And some of this work that has been taking place in robotics has taken place at the Interactive Robots and Media Lab at the United Arab Emirates University, where you used to work. You founded this institute, and tell us about this lab and the work taking place there. When I was back in Cambridge at MIT, most of my work and my thesis work had to do with a question that's pretty simple to set in quite a specific term. So I was dealing with the question of how one is able to make robots understand and produce natural language in a way that is meaningful. And how can you get them to really, through their experience, understand the meaning of words that we use and connect these words to things in their environment, to stimuli coming through their senses, to their actions and their purpose. After finishing from MIT, I decided to take a step that was uh, quite unorthodox, but on the other hand, uh, quite interesting as it turned out. So having seen the development that's taking place in the Gulf and that part of the world, and having understood that it's quite a central node and hub in many respects, and it's not only the Gulf itself, it's the Gulf and its connection with the Indian subcontinent, the Gulf and its connection to Central Asia, to the Balkans, the whole Middle East, and so on, I uh, got an offer from the oldest and biggest university in the Emirates, uh, which included uh, the possibility for creating an interactive robotics lab over there and decided to uh, take, if you want, this uh, partially entrepreneurial step and try to build such a lab over there. That's actually what we did and we had a number of uh, big successes that had huge media attention all over the world. So uh, two uh, of the most memorable such projects were, number one, we built the uh, world's first Arabic-speaking conversational Android robot, which 
which was called uh, Ibn Sina, named after the famous uh, philosopher uh, from that region. And apart from that, uh, we had another project that got funding from Microsoft that was called Facebots, which were actually robots, social robots that could remember the meetings that they have with you, could know who your friends are, and could also access and utilize information from Facebook in order to have more interesting dialogues with you. It was quite an interesting endeavor in many, many respects. Some of them are much more, if you want, scientific and technical. Others are much more organizational and others are cultural. Because it's not a straightforward thing to try to build such a thing in an institution that's uh, quite a traditional, if you want, institution in a region that didn't have so much, uh, you know, academia in the last years. And in a region which, in many respects, although there are a lot of ancient roots in its cultural traditions, in uh, the last years there was a very, very small population in the whole Gulf. The uh, countries are quite new. The Emirates is there from the 70s. And the educational system was at a very basic stage. In 1950 in Abu Dhabi there was only one single school with a single teacher for the whole population. And, well, this means that there's a lot of work to be done in order to be able to find the right way to create such institutions. You mentioned the Ibn Sina robot and the Facebots robot. What are some other projects that you have been working on as well? There's a number of projects, and I will uh, talk about them, but I think it's uh, worth speaking a little more about Ibn Sina in the beginning. So Ibn Sina was an interesting project uh, in many respects. Number one, having an Android robot, right, that looks like a human, that has facial expressions, that can move its hands, that can synthesize speech and can recognize speech, is a very exciting platform for our students. So whenever you know, I taught them things about artificial intelligence and about computer vision and about natural language processing and all of these other fields of computer science, they had the right platform to start trying their ideas on. Number two, apart from that, it was an interesting cultural move. So in the Emirates, because of this disconnect, if you want, from uh, mainstream scientific development in uh, you know the last centuries, I wanted to be able to bring back to their memories parts of the past of the wider region that show that scientific and philosophical and technological development has actually taken place over there and in a way that's not isolated but also quite connected to the rest of the scientific development of the world. This is why I chose Ibn Sina or Avicenna as he's known in the West as the main character for my robot. So Avicenna was born in what used to be Greater Persia as part of what is usually known as the Islamic Renaissance. It's a short period of time in which in all of these uh, areas there started to be a very interesting revitalization and a very interesting reconnection with all of the knowledge that was coming to them from previous civilizations. So Ibn Sin is a prime example of that. He is a person that was speaking Persian and Arabic. He is a person who actually studied, apart from, of course, the Quran and Islamic law, a lot of philosophy, and especially Aristotle, and he's a prime continuer of Aristotle. He's a person that studied the medical sciences, and Galen, again, when it comes to his very strong Greek connection in that respect. And he's a person who also you know, infusing elements from the Indian tradition, the Persian tradition, and all of the other traditions of the region, was able to not only assimilate this knowledge, but also advance it in order to create something that was based very strongly on the sources that he had gotten, but also advanced it at a higher level. So, for example, his medical textbooks were the standard textbook in European universities for like 300 years after his death. And, you know, figures such as Ibn Sina were some of the key figures in being able to preserve 
and continue even ancient Greek knowledge in that respect. So this is why we chose him as a, a key figure for our robot, in order to bring back the memory of such people and such times to our students and show that everything that we're teaching them about philosophy and technology and science is not something foreign to their own culture and it's also not isolated. There's a whole line of continuation when it comes to the progress of knowledge in human civilization. Now, regarding other projects, uh, for example, we had a mini-project with Schlumberger in which we had students from our university, in collaboration with students from Tokyo Tech, design a pipe inspection robot that is able to navigate inside oil pipes and uh, is also able to check for defects before they actually create a problem. We had a strong connection with educational robotics. Once I was sent over from the Abu Dhabi Education Council, this is the state, if you want, Ministry of Education of Abu Dhabi, to Korea in 2009 in order to bid to bring the World Robotics Olympia to the Emirates. And uh, I was part of a team with another four people. We bid against uh, Jakarta and Moscow and we were able to actually bring the World Robotics Olympia to the Emirates. And since then, a huge program has started with robotics in schools and so on. Apart from that, there were many other technologies around, for example, our robots, either Facebots or Ibn Sina that were developed. So Ibn Sina was meant to be part of an interactive theater. And uh, we developed a lot of technologies for this interactive theater, so there's an actual stage, and normal if you want theatrical space, but apart from the robot and humans on the stage, you have the ability of projecting things on the screen behind the robot, you have the ability to project stuff that is happening in an online virtual world, or to have you know virtual characters that are either autonomous or operated by other humans take part in the uh, actions of the stage, and we also played very much with the idea of teleoperation and teleparticipation, so you could have a remote actor which is somewhere far away, even in a different continent or city, move his body and speak, and at the same time you could have the robot copying the movements of his body and his speech while the actor is watching the world through the eyes of the robot. So in a sense, we're creating a robot which is almost like a proxy body for the physical body of the actor. So these were some of the technologies that we uh, played with. We also asked a number of questions regarding social acceptance of technologies and also regarding you know, what people in the region of the Gulf would like to see when it comes to robotics. And there were some studies uh, such as these uh, taking place in Europe and the States and Japan, but there was nothing for the Gulf before. And quite interesting because humanoid robots and robotics more generally and intelligent systems might have a certain uh, you know, weird interactions with the local culture given that there is this tendency towards uh, things that are not anthropomorphic and uh, you know, away from iconicity and uh, representationalist art and so on. So um, we actually got the robot, we went to shopping malls, we went to exhibitions, we even flew the robot first class on Emirates Airlines, we went to Saudi, and we got the robot to interact with people and speak with people. And we recorded them, we gave them questionnaires, and we have a number of interesting results that came out that uh, you can find out in our publication. So, for example, we found out that the Gulf is pretty receptive, but if you go further west, then things start to become a little more negative. We also found that when it comes to application areas of robots, there's a clear, if you want, ordering of where people would like to see these uh, robots uh, become part of our everyday life. And you now everybody would be happy to have robots be used as cleaning appliances in their home or helping them out with chores like that. But when it comes to having robots in hospitals or having robots, you know, take care of your children or become tutors of your children, things were not so positive. Uh, so this was another side. And apart from all the technological, if you want, work that we did in order to develop these technologies, uh, we also did work in trying to see what are people really thinking about these things in that region. And uh, if you want, use these as guidelines for future development. Looking forward, do you foresee robots becoming a more prominent part of industry 
and indeed our lives in the near future? And what breakthroughs can we expect in the field of robotics and how can they benefit humankind? There's an interesting uh, discourse that one can start on the basis of this question. There are many ways to approach it. One way is to start thinking about the basic ontological categories of our world. So traditionally you just had inanimate matter. Then slowly you have life appearing. Uh, With life reaching all the level to humans, you start having parts of inanimate matter being formed into tools and being used by humans. So you have man-made objects. And then slowly you start having machines that are able to continue having motion on their own, again made by humans. And very, very recently we start having these you know, first machines that are exhibiting kinds of intelligence. And machines that we start interacting with in an everyday, if you want, manner. Think of just going to an ATM and having a small dialogue with it in order to take money. Or think of communicating with a program on your PC and so on. Or think of playing a computer game which responds to you in an intelligent way. Out of the traditional categories of inanimate matter, life, humans, tools and machines, we start having intelligent machines. And one special category of such intelligent machines are robots, and uh, even more so intelligent robots, right? And they're quite different than simple computers because they don't rely on a human to be giving them inputs, and they don't rely on a human to interpret their output, right? So it's not just a keyboard and a screen, but they have their own eyes and ears, they have vision systems, they have sensors, and they have their own hands. They're able to move around, they're able to manipulate things and so on. And uh, definitely they have uh, a much wider the role to play in the future, alongside the other technologies that will come with them, so either virtual characters or mechanical and biological and cognitive prosthetics, uh, bioengineered organisms and so on. So what I see happening is that we're going to get a much richer variety of such uh, categories of things being part of our everyday life in the future. Now, will this be good? Will this be bad? Well, this depends very much, uh, first of all, I think it's partially unavoidable, but it depends very much on how these things are gradually introduced in our lives and what will happen in the near future. And so it's a valid thing to be doing, to be asking, first of all, uh, questions of an ethical uh, nature and also of an organizational nature in order to see in uh, what way we would like to have these things become part of our life in a way that's uh, beneficial for humanity and in a way that makes our life much more worth living. And, of course, we cannot predict everything from where we stand and we cannot control everything from where we stand, but it's an exercise that's uh, worthwhile doing and... uh, I guess that there's a lot of work in that direction too in the world. Do you believe that the time will come when it would be possible to replicate true human intelligence and human interaction in robots? If you go back to the history of artificial intelligence, you have one of the key figures is Alan Turing, uh, was an interesting person. He was uh, a cryptologist, a mathematician, and one of the fathers of AI. The Turing introduced this notion of the Turing test, which was a pretty simple idea. He said that, okay, now that we have this new uh, concept, the concept of artificial intelligence, let's try to create a nice uh, test that we can carry out in the real world to check if uh, a thing that is supposed to have artificial intelligence really does exist exhibit this property. The test was uh, pretty simple. So the idea is that you have a computer program that's supposed to be exhibiting artificial intelligence, you have a human, and you have another human who is communicating with the computer program or the other human through a teletype, pretty much through like chat window in today's terms.
terms, right? So he's able to write on a keyboard and get answers to what he's saying on the screen. So Turing said that if we let this uh, second human communicate with that thing, which he doesn't know if it's a human or a machine, for five minutes and he's unable to discriminate whether it's a machine or a human, then most probably this thing that we have back there does exhibit artificial intelligence because in practice humans cannot phenomenally discriminate between the two. And this is what he proposed. So far after uh, many years, we really haven't reached that stage. Of course, in order to be able to talk about artificial intelligence in robots, you need an extension of what we had here in the Turing test. It's not enough to communicate with a keyboard and a screen to a robot. You want something that's physically next to you and which you cannot discriminate whether it's a human or a robot uh, on the basis of all of its appearance and behavior and interaction. And uh, right now, although there are a lot of advances, it's still far away. But I think that apart from a lot of argumentation that has taken place in philosophical terms, I don't see why this will not come in the near future. And there is quite some evidence of steps getting towards the right direction to bring it. Of course, it will not be in five years or ten years. It might be in 30 years or 50 years or 100 years. But there is a slow but constant progress towards getting machines that can have an apparent intelligence that's closer and closer to humans. And remember that in AI, when it comes to specific domains of intelligence, we have machines that can surpass humans, but only in specific domains. So you can have Deep Blue winning Kasparov in chess. But of course, you know, uh, being able to calculate millions of combinations in order to win over Kasparov is something at which machines are good at. But there are other things in which machines currently are not good at, and humans are much, much better. So a three-year-old has a much wider domain of application of his intelligence uh, as compared to any robot that we have today. But things are progressing, and it's interesting how machines are becoming more intelligent, uh, and at the same time, machines might be enabling humans to develop other skills that they didn't have before. And in the end, we shouldn't really be thinking about machines and humans as competitive entities, but as cooperative entities. And what I think is really happening is that the more we get humans and machines to come together in a more natural way, we are able to get things that are better than each one of them alone. So we're able to get the best of both worlds. And in the end, we get these systems that contain both humans as, you know, operators and components of them and uh, computers and robots that are able to do much, much better than what we can imagine. On a more personal note, having come from Greece and having pursued many of your studies in the United States as well, what has your experience been like teaching and working in the United Arab Emirates? This is a very interesting question. So, first of all, there's another sub-question that's related to this. It has to do with, if you want my Hellenic background itself and whether this has helped me in any sense uh, in the stuff that I'm doing. And I think that partially it has, be it through our cultural tradition, be it through our language. Uh, there were a lot of things when it comes to academia that were coming almost naturally to me. Of course, this is not a general statement, but there is a certain, if, if you want, advantage that should be turned, of course, into a responsibility from the fact that I was immersed into Greek culture since I was a very young kid. Another important thing that has to do with the Hellenic identity is the fact that although we're not absolutely clear about that and we don't know how to deal with it, we actually, in many respects, belong both to the West and to the East. So having grown up in modern Greece, although it was very natural and easy for me to be able to you know, live and communicate in the United States and in Europe, I found out that it wasn't so foreign to me to be able to 
live and communicate in the Gulf and even all the way up to India and other places. This is one of our interesting advantages in the Hellenic identity, the fact that we really have elements from uh, both sides, or if you want to turn the sentence around, there are also, you know, shared elements with Hellenism or even Hellenic elements both in the West and the East. In that respect too, it was quite interesting to be in the Emirates. So for example, one thing that I found out is that, you know, whenever you use a, you know, deeply modern Greek body language and highly exaggerated and, you know, with a lot of mannerisms and strong words, that was it. My students would love it in the Emirates. They would instantly understand what I'm talking about. I mean, I even had students, you know, come at the end of the class and tell me, so you Greeks, you're Arabs, right? <laughs> it was so natural for them, right? And so understandable. On the other hand, this means that you're able to also, by having this bilateral view of the world through, you know, what is called the West now and what is called the East now, you're also able to perceive things that wouldn't have been so easy if you belonged to only one or the other. And this was quite uh, useful too. In order to try to make both sides understand each other and if you want to reconcile their differences and see how there can be benefits to this uh, apparent complementarity of you in the end. And there's a lot to learn from both sides. Finally, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? To start with, there has been quite some media coverage. So if you search on the internet, uh, you're going to find clips from uh, the BBC and Agence France Press and other TV channels. Uh, in YouTube, you're going to find a number of websites. It's my personal website. It's also my lab's website and so on, describing some of the things that we've done that also have other links to publicity. Oh, one good starting point is uh, just YouTube and the channel that's called IRMLUAU, where you're going to be seeing, be able to see a lot of videos from uh, uh, robots, Uh, press coverage, as well as a TED talk that I gave in the Emirates, which uh, contains a good summary of uh, what I was trying to do in the last four years, uh, which is also a big part of what I'm uh, going to continue doing in the future. And what was the YouTube channel again? It is I-R-M-L-U-A-E-U, which is the acronym for Interactive Robots and Media Lab, United Arab Emirates University. Wonderful. Well, Professor Mavridis, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today on Austin Hellenic Radio. You're most welcome. It's my big pleasure.